This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's that time of year again. My favorite holiday, Halloween. So as a special treat, no tricks, I'll be sharing with you a second volume of Halloween Tales. If you missed last year's Halloween special episode, I shared the stories of Bloody Mary and La Llorona, two tales that have been part of folklore for generations. This time, I'll be sharing with you two scary urban legends that are actually based on true stories. You may have even heard these tales before. Something someone shared with you at a sleepover when you were a kid or on a camping trip sitting around the fire, tales that were told with the goal of scaring you. We love to be scared. Perhaps it makes us feel more alive when the goosebumps are raised on our arms or the hair stands up on our neck. Who knows? But for whatever reason, when someone starts a story with, now this is really creepy and I swear it really happened, we tend to lean in not to miss one scary word of the story, even though we know it might make us jump back in fright at the end. Well, my dear listeners... Sit back, relax, and lean in to hear every word as I spin some creepy tales for you that I swear are actually based in reality. We've all heard one version of this story or another, probably when we were little kids on a scouting trip or sleepover. It begins like this. A radio or television station broadcasts an alert. Be on the lookout. A prisoner has escaped from a maximum security facility or a deranged patient is missing from a psychiatric facility for the criminally insane. The alert goes on further to say that the escapee has one distinct feature. He has a missing hand, and in its place, there is a hook. A young couple has parked on a lonely road for some privacy. Of course, playing in the background is music on the car radio, until the news alert cuts in. Soon after the announcement, which the couple pays little attention to, being otherwise occupied, they hear a scratching or scraping sound outside of the car. The girl breaks away to nervously ask, what was that? The boy, at first, ignores her concerns, but then he hears it himself. Both nervous now, and now believing they are also hearing footsteps near the car, they decide to leave. The boy returns the girl to her home. As they arrive, both laugh at their silly reaction to what must have just been their overactive imaginations. As the boy walks around the car to open the door for the girl, what a gentleman, he sees something and freezes. The girl sees what her boyfriend's eyes are frozen on. An object is hanging from the door handle. It's a bloody hook. Fade to black. Silly story, right? Not even that scary if you're, say, over about 12 years old. These stories are all in good fun. Just a bit of a scare, and then a laugh for most children. But there are several elements in this story that are based in reality. And not just for one, but for several true crime cases. Here are a couple of the most well-known.
Lover's Lanes are places throughout the world that are created where mostly young people can go to be alone. It used to be called necking, then hooking up, but we know what it means no matter what the term. These places, of course, are dark and isolated and the perfect location for criminals, weirdos, and wackos to lurk. There have been several incidents over the years where killers have used these spots as hunting grounds to commit murder. Two of the most infamous serial killers who attacked unsuspecting couples in lovers' lanes were the Son of Sam and the Zodiac Killer. David Berkowitz was dubbed the Son of Sam when a handwritten letter was left behind at one murder scene with that as the signature. In this bizarre letter, the Son of Sam detailed his love of prowling the streets and hunting down his victims. The string of attacks first attributed to the Son of Sam began to terrorize New York City in the summer of 1976. Two teenage girls were shot as they sat in a parked car outside of one of the girls' apartments in the Bronx. The next attack didn't happen until October. This time, a couple was targeted in Queens, New York. They were also in a parked car. The 19-year-old man survived, but the girl did not. They were both shot in the head. A month later, two girls were shot in Queens while walking home from a movie. Again, only one of them survived. As the new year began, the attacks continued. On January 30th, 1977, an engaged couple were shot as they sat together in a car. The woman died of her injuries while the man survived. It was at this time that police began to suspect that the attacks were all connected due to the caliber and type of weapon that was being used. They also noted that the killer was targeting young women with long, dark hair and or couples in parked cars. A theory began to form that the killer might be seeking revenge because he felt rejected by women. Another woman was shot and killed while walking down the street in March. Then in April, a young couple was killed in the Bronx, just a few blocks from an earlier attack. The son of Sam Litter was found at that scene. In June, another couple in a car was shot after leaving a disco in Queens. Neither was seriously injured. There were witnesses to the shooting, and a composite sketch was created of the suspect. In July, another couple was shot, this time in Brooklyn, as law enforcement officers were heavily patrolling Queens and the Bronx, where the previous attacks had occurred. The woman died while the man survived, but he was blinded. These would be the final victims of the son of Sam. A woman living in the area of the shooting saw a man remove a parking ticket from his car that evening and informed police. They found that the parking ticket had been issued to a car belonging to David Berkowitz from Yonkers. They contacted Yonkers police to pick up Berkowitz as a possible witness. Yonkers authorities then told the Brooklyn police that they already had suspicions that Berkowitz might be the son of Sam. When they searched his car, found parked outside his apartment, they found several weapons, including a 44 caliber bulldog pistol that forensics determined was the murder weapon. When Berkowitz was arrested for suspicion of murder on August 10, 1977, his first words to police were, What took you so long? Another serial killer who targeted victims in parked cars and lovers' lanes was the still unidentified murderer known as the Zodiac Killer. While there is still some debate as to whether all the victims attributed to the Zodiac Killer were actually killed by the same person, this killer terrorized Northern California in the late 1960s and early 70s, predating the Son of Sam by almost a decade. 
Between December 1968 and October 1969, four men and three women were attacked by someone calling himself Zodiac. A teenage couple was killed on December 20th, 1968, on Lake Herman Road in Benicia, located in the North Bay region of the San Francisco Bay Area. The couple was parked at a gravel turnout at a well-known lover's lane. It was their first date. They were both shot and killed. In July 1969, a couple was sitting in their car in a parking lot at Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, four miles from the first murder scene. The killer walked up to the car, shone a flashlight into the couple's faces, and began shooting. The woman died, but the man survived and was able to give a description of the shooter. On August 1st, letters began arriving to local newspapers in the San Francisco Bay Area. The sender claimed responsibility for the attacks and included cryptograms, which he said, if solved, would reveal his identity. On August 7th, another letter to the editor arrived, which stated, This is a Zodiac speaking, which is how he would be identified in the media from that point forward. Newspapers published the cryptogram, and a couple cracked the code just a day later, but it did not reveal the murderer's identity. In late September, a couple was picnicking at Lake Berryessa when they were approached by a man on foot, wearing a black executioner-style hood, a black shirt with a bib-like portion covering the chest, with a cross-circle symbol affixed to it. Speaking to the couple from beneath the mask, he claimed to be an escaped convict who needed their car and money. He had the couple tie each other up, and then, instead of robbing them, began stabbing them repeatedly. Before leaving, he stopped at the couple's car and wrote on it with a marker pen, Vallejo, 12-20-68-7-4-69, September 27-69, by knife. Later that evening, the killer called the Napa County Sheriff's Office to report his crime. The victims were found by some men fishing at the lake and taken to a nearby hospital. Both were still alive. However, the female victim died two days later. The male recovered and was able to describe his attacker. Two weeks later, the killer attacked a cab driver in San Francisco. He requested the driver to take him to the intersection of Washington and Maple. Once the cab stopped, he shot the driver in the head, killing him. He then tore off a piece of the dead man's shirt and later sent a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle with the torn piece enclosed to prove he was the killer. The cab driver, Paul Stein, was the last victim to be definitively tied to the Zodiac killer. However, there are several other suspected victims. Several more letters were sent to the newspapers, but not all are believed to be legitimately from the Zodiac killer, and the debate continues as to who were his actual victims and which letters were truly sent by the killer and which are hoaxes. The Zodiac killer was never identified, and several theories have been floated as to who he was. Just like the Jack the Ripper case, this is perhaps another infamous serial killer whose identity may never be known. But there are earlier examples of killers who attack couples on lovers' lanes that you might not have heard about. As early as 1930, there was a string of unsolved murders in Queens, New York. These killings were attributed to someone who came to be known as the 3X Killer. On June 11, 1930, Joe Mazinski and Catherine May were attacked while parked at a lover's lane in Queens. He shot Mazinski and then raped Catherine. Afterwards, he handed her a letter written in red ink that read, 
Joseph Mazinski, 3X3-X-097. He was described as a gaunt, shabbily dressed foreigner, about 40 years old. Another letter was sent to the press that called Mazinski a dirty rat and said he had been killed because he was in possession of secret documents. The killer struck again a week later, targeting another young couple parked in a secluded area. He killed the man and again let the woman go, dropping her near a bus stop. He sent another letter to the press claiming to be the agent of a secret international order. People believed him to be a delusional madman. He sent one more letter to police saying he was done killing because all of the, quote, mysterious documents he claimed his victims were in possession of had been returned. However, on October 3, 1937, more than seven years after the last 3X murder, a couple was found dead in a Lover's Lane area in Queens. They had been shot and stabbed, and both victims had circles drawn in red lipstick on their foreheads. We'll move on to another creepy urban legend. This is one that scared the bejesus out of me when I was about junior high age. The reason it was so scary was because, as a 12- and 13-year-old, I used to babysit occasionally for neighbors. This is a way for parents to get a fun night out, bowling or to the movies, or perhaps out for a romantic dinner without crayons brought to the table, and a way for me to make a few bucks to purchase whatever the heck 13-year-olds covet. Anyway, whenever I would babysit some little rugrats, I would remember this tale. If you've ever babysat at someone else's house, you know the drill. You arrive... The parents give you instructions for bedtime, snacks, etc., and then they leave. You then corral the little monsters for an hour or so before it's bedtime, and if you're lucky, they drop off to sleep quickly, and you have the rest of the night to watch TV, talk on the phone, or do homework. Now it's at this time, when the house is quiet, kids are sleeping, that this scary tale would come to mind. It goes something like this. A young girl is babysitting and all is quiet. She's waiting for her boyfriend to call when the phone rings. She answers it, but the person on the other end hangs up. A few minutes later, the silence is broken again by the ringing phone. She picks it up, but this time hears only breathing before the caller once again hangs up. Now believing it's her boyfriend trying to be funny, she's a bit irritated when the phone rings once again a few minutes later. What? She barks into the phone. The caller, a male voice she doesn't recognize, says, Have you checked the children? She freezes for a minute and then asks, Who is this? He again says, Have you checked the children? Scared, she slams down the phone. A few minutes later, she gets another call. Hoping it's her boyfriend or the children's parents, she answers, Why haven't you checked the children? The scary voice asks. She decides to call the police. The police ask if she's seen or heard anyone like a prowler around the house. She has not. They say there is not much they can do, but they'll let the officer on patrol in the area know and ask him to take a look around the neighborhood. Not feeling very relieved, she decides to turn down the lights in the house so she can better see out of the window into the dark night in case anyone might be lurking outside. She takes a peek outside, but sees no one. Moments later, the phone rings again, and she jumps. The voice then asks, Why did you turn down the lights? Totally creeped out now, 
she calls the police again and explains that this man is watching her. The police now say that next time she gets a call from the creep, to try and keep him on the line, and they will try and trace the call. Um, not positive, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't work this way. But on with the story. The phone rings again. Stealing herself to stay calm enough to keep the man on the phone, she answers it. You still have not checked the children, he growls. I warned you. Look, who is this? What do you want? You're scaring me. Is that what you're trying to do to scare me? She shakily asks. No, he answers, not too convincingly. Then what? What do you want? She cries. Your blood all over me, he replies. Terrified, she slams down the phone. Just seconds later, it rings. She jumps, grabs it, and begins to scream into it, leave me alone. But it's not the creep. It's the police dispatcher with an urgent message. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Get out of there immediately. She runs out the front door, just as multiple police cars screech into the driveway. As she's running, she sees over her shoulder the figure of a man emerging in the dark hallway near the children's bedroom. The police enter, guns drawn, and seize the man. The babysitter watches as they bring him out, handcuffed. He is covered in blood. The children were murdered in their sleep. As he passes within feet of the terrified babysitter, she can just hear him say, I told you to check the children. Scary story, right? I think it speaks to how vulnerable we feel as a teen and also how it seems so odd to have the responsibility of keeping a child safe from harm. I know that always felt weird to me. I mean, I was a kid. What the heck could I do to protect a small child? The two stories I'm going to tell you each have elements of the scary urban legend I just shared with you. I'm not going to tell you a true story about children being killed, but this is a story about a babysitter who was tragically murdered one long-ago night. On March 18, 1950, 13-year-old Janet Chrisman had promised to babysit the three-year-old son of Mr. and Mrs. Ed Romack. Janet attended Jefferson Junior High School in Columbia, Missouri. There was an eighth-grade party that night, but Janet elected to skip it in order to earn a few dollars babysitting. She had a special Easter outfit on layaway at a local store and needed the money to make the last payment. Shortly before leaving to play cards with friends, Ed Romack showed Janet how to load and fire his shotgun just in case of an emergency. Wow, Missouri in the 50s, I guess? I never had a parent give me these instructions. He also told her to turn on the bright porch light first before answering it if anyone came to the door. The Romax left just before 8 p.m. The house where Janet was babysitting that night was somewhat set apart from the rest of the town. It was located on a hill just outside of Columbia City Limit. But even in town, it was a quiet evening. The weather was bad that night, with wind and sleet, and the temperature hovered just above 20 degrees Fahrenheit. At 10.35 p.m., Officer Roy McCowan at the Columbia Police Department answered the phone at the night desk and heard a girl's voice screaming hysterically. Come quick, she screamed, just before the phone went dead. Because it was after hours, the board of the telephone company was not staffed and the call could not be traced. All the officer could do was wait to see if the person called back. She didn't. Just after 1.30 a.m., the Romax returned home. They found the front porch light on, and the blinds open in the front window, as if someone had come to the door 
and Janet had turned on the porch light to look out of the window before opening it. What they found inside was terrible. Janet was lying in a pool of blood on the living room carpet. There was evidence of a struggle throughout the house. She had apparently been on the phone or trying to reach it, and items were knocked over and strewn about from the phone area in the kitchen, down the hallway, and to the living room at the front of the house. Janet had been hit in the head with a blunt instrument, raped and strangled. A cord from an iron found in the house had been ripped from it and used to asphyxiate the girl. There were wounds on her head, including some strange puncture marks that seemed to have come from a small, sharp instrument. Because the Romax home was just on the outskirts of Columbia, the Boone County Sheriff's Department took jurisdiction of the case. They brought in bloodhounds to try and track the killer. The dogs were able to follow the scent through thick underbrush near the house and to a nearby intersection, but there the trail ran cold. They quickly surmised that the attacker might have been someone known to Janet. She had obviously turned the porch light on, as instructed, when someone came to the door. They believed that she had let the person in, and if so, it meant it was a person familiar to her, someone she would not be afraid of. As the back door was unlocked, they believed that after the murder, the killer had left by that door. There was one strange detail at the crime scene. A side window was broken out, but it was determined that it had been made to look like someone had broken in from the outside to throw investigators off. The furniture in the home, including a lamp that was underneath the window, had not been disturbed, making it obvious that someone had not climbed through the window to gain access. Soon, the investigation began to stall, mostly due to the fact that the Columbia Police and the Boone County Sheriff's Department were fighting over jurisdiction and not cooperating with each other. Citizens naturally were afraid. There was a murderer on the loose, and it seemed police had no clue who it was. They began to lock their doors and became suspicious of their neighbors, something unheard of before in the small town of 31,000. The local emergency number was even changed from 3132 to the easier to dial 112. During the investigation, hundreds of people were interviewed, and one local teen even confessed to the crime but was released when it was determined that he could not be the killer. One man, a friend of the Romax, named Robert Mueller, came under suspicion. Mueller had been to the Romax house several times and had remarked to Ed Romack that he admired Janet Christman's, quote, well-developed form. As well, Mrs. Romack told investigators that she felt uncomfortable around Mueller. He had run his hand up and down her dress just two days before the murder when she found herself alone with him. Detectives believed that Romack would have known Janet was babysitting at his friend's house that night because he had previously asked her to babysit that same evening for his children. It was also alleged that Mueller carried a mechanical pencil with him that had a round punch end that matched the puncture wounds found on Janet. However, the investigation of Robert Mueller was bungled. According to Columbia Daily Tribune reporter T.J. Greeny, quote, on May 4th, Sheriff Glenn Powell brought Mueller to the farmhouse of Deputy Sheriff Julius Wedemeyer for an all-night questioning session. The next day, apparently unsatisfied with his answers, Powell took him to Jefferson City to undergo a lie detector test. The prosecuting attorney was not told about the questioning, and the sheriff did not request an arrest warrant for Mueller. It was later alleged that Powell kept the prosecuting attorney out of the loop because he was worried about his ties to the police chief. In May, a grand jury convened to hear the case. 
but did not return an indictment against Mueller. They did, however, criticize the police and sheriff's department for their lack of cooperation with each other. Mueller left Columbia after joining the Air Force. Later, he filed a lawsuit against the sheriff's department, but didn't win. He died in 2006 at age 83. Over half a century later, the question still remains, who murdered Janet Christman? Mary Beth Brown has researched the case and found another possible suspect. Brown is a manuscript specialist who works in the Western Historical Manuscript Collection at the University of Missouri. She came across a record of another murder victim who was discovered two blocks away from the Romax four years before Janet was killed. Mary Lou Jenkins was strangled to death with an extension cord a similar M.O. to Janet's murder. Brown also found that several rapes and peeping Tom incidents had been reported in Columbia between 1946 and 1950. A man named Floyd Cochran confessed to Mary Lou's murder and was sentenced to death. However, he recanted his confession before his execution. One of the most creepy aspects of the babysitter urban legend is the part where she is told that the call is coming from inside the house. And this last story is a true account of a family being terrorized from inside their own home. I kid you not. You may sleep with the lights on after this one. In 2007 in Washington State, the Kuykendall family began receiving harassing phone calls that terrorized them and two other local families. It began in February when 16-year-old Courtney Kuykendall's cell phone began sending text messages to her friends on its own. At first, she thought it must just be a phone glitch and didn't think much about it. Then the threatening phone calls began. A hoarse male voice began threatening to slit the family's throats and left other equally terrifying and violent messages. Firecrest Washington police were called and the calls were traced. That's when things got really weird. The calls were traced back to the Kuykendall's own phones, even when they were turned off. Then, two other Firecrest families began receiving the threatening calls. Messages were saying, I know where you are. I know where you live. I'm going to kill you. Each time the calls were received, the caller ID display read, Restricted. Phones began turning on by themselves after being turned off by the owners. Ringtones also changed on their own. Then it appeared that the caller was actually watching the family as well. He knew when the children left for school and when they were home alone. He described what they were wearing and what they were doing while inside their home. Once, when one of the harassed women was slicing limes in her kitchen, a call came in from Restricted to tell her that he preferred lemons. Even the security measures they took were being monitored by the anonymous caller. The Kuykendalls installed a new security system in their home. Not long after, Restricted left a voicemail, in which he recited the new security code. They met with police, although they had been warned by the caller not to make a report. Soon after this meeting, another voicemail arrived. This time, it simply played a recording of the conversation they just had with the police detective. They tried switching to new phones and even opening new accounts, but the calls never stopped. The Tacoma Police, Pierce County Sheriff's Department, and Homeland Security all worked to try and uncover the perpetrator, 
to no avail. They investigated people close to the family who might be involved, and even the family members themselves, but they did not identify a suspect. Of course, it is possible for a person to hack into a cell phone, and even clone a cell phone, which would allow them to do almost anything the owner could do, including turning it on and off and changing ringtones. But this would not enable someone to listen in on a phone call. A person would have to hack into a website operated by the cell phone company or other such sophisticated manipulations in order to cause the kind of activity that the Kuykendall's caller harassed them with. The calls continued for four months, but then simply stopped. The case remains a mystery. Finally, I'll tell you the super creepy story of the infamous Watcher House in Westfield, New Jersey. When Derek and Maria Broadus purchased the $1.3 million, six-bedroom, four-bath, colonial-style house in 2014, they thought they'd found their dream home. Not long after, a stalker turned their dream home into a nightmare. They began receiving letters, the first only three days after purchasing the house. The letter read, My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them out to me. The letters continued arriving, once alluding to a secret hiding in the house itself. Have they found out what is in the walls yet, it read? In time, they will. The next letter also claimed that the sender now knew their names. I am pleased to know your names and the names now of the young blood you have brought to me, the letter read. It began making veiled threats against the Broadus's children. Will the young bloods play in the basement? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. The letter writer made it clear that he was watching the house when he complained about the renovations being made inside. The new owners had spent $100,000 on updating the house, which was built in 1905. The writer also said that the windows and doors allowed him to watch and track the family's movements. I am the watcher, he wrote. They reported the threatening letters to the authorities, and the Westfield Police and the Union County Prosecutor's Office opened an investigation. The Broadduses were too frightened to move into their new home and said they would have not purchased it if they knew before that some weirdo was watching it. They were afraid and did not want to risk the safety of their three children. The couple tried listing the house, but took it off the market when it didn't sell. They said in one of the letters they received from the watcher, he made reference to having sent a letter to the previous owners before they sold the house. They then filed suit against the previous owners, John and Andrea Woods, as well as the title and escrow companies involved in the sale for common law fraud, equitable fraud, and emotional distress, for failing to inform them of the harassment by the watcher before they purchased the home. The Woods later countersued, saying that they had been defamed. They admitted to receiving a letter from the watcher, but said it was not threatening. The Broadduses did disclose the letters they received to potential buyers, and not surprisingly, were unable to find a buyer. They were, however, able to find a renter for the property beginning in February 2017, almost two and a half years after they purchased it. Within days of their tenant moving into the property, 
another letter was received. Ibratis' attorney filed a legal brief regarding this letter and stated that it, quote, contained specific threats and was more derogatory and sinister than any of the previous letters. An investigation was started once again by the prosecutor's office, and this time the U.S. Postal Service. The case remains open, and no suspects have been named. The renter, approached by reporters, said he was not concerned about the letters. The year before, the Broadduses had applied for a permit to subdivide the property. Their plan was to tear down the house and build two others in its place, hoping this would end the watcher's obsession with the home. Neighbors objected, saying the smaller lots would be out of character for the neighborhood and complained to the planning board. Their application was denied. Just this month, in October 2017, a judge threw out the lawsuit filed by the Broadduses against the former owners and also the Woods countersuit. Renters continue to occupy the house. It is back on the market, listed at $1,125,000. This case also was made into a movie loosely based on the real events and titled The Watcher. It was released in 2016. <laughs> so what about you would you occupy the house would you take the threat seriously or just chalk it up to some weird prank would you ever consider living in a house with a weird or violent past history there have been several homes that have become infamous as murder sites including the defeo home site of the amityville horror the murder of the DeFeo family by Ron DeFeo, and the subsequent alleged haunting. What about Fox Hollow Farms in Indianapolis, Indiana, home of the serial killer Herb Baumeister, where several victims were murdered, and it is also said to be haunted? Would you consider purchasing it and living there, as the current owners do? Tell us on the Facebook page if you'd be brave enough to live in such a home, or is it a big hell no for you? You can post your thoughts on facebook.com slash once upon a crime pod. I hope you enjoyed this special Halloween episode of Once Upon a Crime. I also wish you a happy and safe Halloween. And by all means, if you dress up in some really cool or creepy or fun costume, share it with us on Facebook at the Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page. There will be no episode next week as there are five Mondays in October, but the next episode will release as normal on November 6th. But there is a new bonus episode on the Patreon page. You can listen to it there or download it at patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. You can also hear me on this week's episode of Murder Road Trip, where I travel to Kansas City with Haley to discuss the life and crimes of serial killer J.R. Robinson. And don't forget to listen to last week's episode of Ticklish Business, where I discuss the movie Young Frankenstein with host Kristen Lopez. I'm all over the place. Check it out. And I'm still taking entries for the Studio Sweden earbud giveaway. Send a screenshot or photo of your iTunes review or showing that you are subscribed to Once Upon a Crime and email it to esther at truecrimepodcast.com to be entered. The winner will be announced on the November 6th episode. I'm loving the emails you guys are sending. Thanks for all your kind words, for making me laugh, and just saying hello. Keep them coming, and good luck. Finally, if you want to hear some true crime cases from the UK, you have to listen to They Walk Among Us. I guarantee that these are fascinating cases that you probably haven't heard before. 
Check out the trailer at the end of this episode for more info and links to that show. Happy Halloween and be good to one another. podcast exploring the UK's most sinister and surreal crimes, including the woman who killed the boyfriend as he spent too much time on Facebook, to the teenage boys whose online relationship involves spies, sex, and the near-fatal stabbing of one of them. Subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider.